everybody to the latest in our series of podcast discussions on the extended public health enterprise. I'm Dave Spizer, Executive Vice President of Corporate Strategy at ICF. And once again, I'm excited to be joined by my colleague, my colleague uh, Nicola Dawkins-Lynn. Say hi, Nicola. Hi, everyone. This is Nicola Dawkins-Lynn, and I am in our public health business. And we're both delighted that today uh, we have with us Dr. Marcus Plesha, Chief Medical Officer of the Association of State and Territorial Health Officers, otherwise known as ASTO. Uh, welcome, Dr. Plesha. And uh, could I ask you to say a few words on your own background and how you arrived at ASTO? Yeah, sure. Um, thank you so much for having me on, on, the, on the show today. Um, so I, I'm Marcus Plesha. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, um, which we refer to as ASTO. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, my background is in, in medicine and public health. I, I trained in family medicine um, and practiced medicine in an academic setting for about 10 years, but during that time ended up doing more and more public health work. Um, and then I moved into more of a formal public health career and I've been, spent quite a bit of time in governmental public health. I worked for a while in the North Carolina State Health Department, mostly managing their chronic disease programs. Um, I also worked within North Carolina as the uh, public, the local public health official in Charlotte, which is Mecklenburg County. And then I spent about five years at the Centers for Disease Control where I ran the national cancer programs. Um, I came to ASTO about three years ago as the chief medical officer. Um, and I, I was really attracted to it because I'd, I'd done so much work in state and local and federal government that uh, I thought it would be a really op good opportunity to find ways to support that work and uh, look at ways that we can help the people out in the field be more effective. And that's really what we do at ASTO. We represent the leadership of state and territorial health departments. Um, and we represent them in a number of ways. We, we try to help uh, get them up to speed. Some of them have fairly short tenures just by the nature of their jobs. So we try to support them and help them figure out how to be effective as quickly as possible. We provide technical assistance uh, and, and really work with them through various grants that we get from Centers for Disease Control around uh, specific programmatic work. And then we also lobby for them and represent them uh, in, with Congress and around uh, uh, federal issues. Well, it's certainly important work and right kind of at the coalface in terms of the, the, the current public health emergency we're facing. One of the topics that has emerged from all of our prior discussions um, on the, the public health enterprise in the U.S. is the fact that we have a, a somewhat fragmented approach. Um, you all, I'm sure, have, have direct experience with that on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of the different uh, structures and approaches in, in, in different states and territories around the U.S. Um, how does that kind of show up in the work that you do and what does that mean for ASTO as kind of an umbrella advocacy organization? Well, yeah, I mean, we, to, to begin with, we have, I guess what I would describe as a federalist public health system. It's really most of the public health work and interventions are done at, are directed through the state level. A lot of it's done locally, but you know, it's really the, the main unit is the state public health department in, in each territory, state and territories. Uh, with, with a lot of guidance and oversight and leadership from the federal government, particularly through the Centers for Disease Control. But, you know, when you have 
50 different states and seven uh, districts and territories, it can be challenging because different states are set up different ways. They have different philosophies. They have different political parties in power. So trying to kind of bring that together uh, is, is more of a cohesive whole is one of the things we try to do at ASTO. But we generally don't move forward unless we have consensus from all of our membership. And so that can be a little challenging as well. Um, the other side of that, though, is, I mean, I think the advantages of a state-based system, and particularly a state-based system with a lot of local support and work, is that you can fine-tune what you're doing in public health to the specific populations that you're working with. And we all know that the United States is a diverse nation, and, uh, you know, people are very different depending on the different regions that they live in. And so the idea behind that is that, that we really, uh, you know, are ultimately better able to meet the public needs. Um, so, you know, I, I'd say that it's just a balance. There are some beneficial things about it, and then there are some things that are quite challenging about it. But it is what we have right now, and I'd like to point out that we're not going to change that in the middle of a pandemic. No, no, certainly so. not. Certainly not. <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're riding the bus we're riding for right now, for sure. Absolutely. Dr. Plesha, as, as part of uh, ASTO's work, do you, I don't know if you get much insight into, into working with uh, kind of opposite numbers from, from other nations. Um, if so, is there, is there kind of one feature of another nation's public health system that, you know, would be kind of first on your draft list uh, for something that you could import into the U.S.'s public health system? Well, there, yes, there are. I mean, it is challenging to look at international systems because you're, you know, I, I've realized how different other societies are from, from ours. I mean, you know, early in the pandemic, looking at how they handled it in Asia, well, you know, those are very, very different and, you know, really kind of more autocratic societies than ours. And people would not, I, I really don't think people would accept some of the um, government actions and regulations, which were very effective, but are not sort of things that we're willing to do. But that said, there, there are some, some basic lessons. I mean, first of all, uh, you know, Asian countries have been able to use information technology, uh, you know, greatly to their advantage. And, you know, some of it is their willingness to, you know, have their cell phones track their movements, which, you know, might be more challenging here. But, you know, others is just the capacity to have these kinds of systems that can, you know, really help so that we don't, so that not everything has to be done human to humans face to face. And so that, you know, some of those capacity needs are really handled by technology. And, you know, I think Asian countries have done that very, very well. Um, you know, when you look to countries in Europe, particularly Western Europe, I mean, the thing that, that we constantly see is a, a medical care system that's much, well, it, it is organized. I mean, there is a system. Um, and, you know, the challenge that we have here is we don't, you know, we really don't have a very cohesive system. And so that makes any kind of public health issue that leads to medical illness, it makes the whole challenge of interfacing with medical care and getting people access to medical care, it makes that very difficult. And you know, that it's that's just that's one thing that if we can find more ways to make that more cohesive and to also make it more inclusive and uniform so that people have access to medical care when they need it. That would take a lot of burden off of the public health system so we don't have to spend so much time on that. And so that we really focus on the broader issue of, you know, how do we keep people healthy or from a situation like this, how do we really focus on the preventive side 
and not have to get caught up in the medical treatment side. Um, but that's not the situation that we're in now. So I think those are some of the lessons. Um, yeah, I, those are the main things that come to mind. I mean, you know, outside of just sort of issues of what we value in society, which are very different. And I would say that, you know, Europe does model, a lot of the European nations do model that principle that we were talking about just now of sort of a societal commitment to common good and a willing to make individual sacrifice for the good of others. I, I think they, they, they often do that well, and we could maybe look for some lessons from that as well. As you point out, a lot of the, the, the actual work, of course, gets done at the local level. Um, and a lot of that work gets done in conjunction with uh, the healthcare delivery system, which is substantially in, in private or, or, or you know, nonprofit hands. Uh, how do ASTO's leaders kind of view their relationship with the healthcare delivery system? And, and are there aspects of that relationship that they would kind of like to change? Well, that, that relationship is very, very important. And, you know, we see that playing out now with the pandemic, which clearly has a huge medical response component. But in normal times, uh, it's very important as well. I mean, particularly when you think about the, pub, the big public health issues really are chronic diseases, diseases like heart disease and cancer. And, you know, a lot of the interface for those diseases occurs in the medical care system. So having close relationships is really important. I would say that most state health departments would say that those, you know, they vary in the quality of those relationships, but, you know, they would all probably like to find ways to make them even closer still. You know, most local, most state public health officials, um, I think 75% of them are physicians. And not that I think that's, you know, the only, the only kind of leadership that we should have in states, but it is one place where there's a benefit. I think that when you have physicians leading state health departments, many of them are very, very well connected into the medical care world. Many of them worked in medical care settings before they became the state health official. So that, that helps. That's a real asset that I think that many of our leaders have. Um, you know, and the big thing is they can convene. I mean, when, when they need, when we need to work closely with the medical care system, they can bring the right people to the table. They can generally bring the leadership for medical care systems into the table. And that's very important, particularly when we face significant challenges like the one that we're in now. Absolutely. And, you know, um, with uh, the importance of the health care delivery system, uh, it's certainly clear, central. Uh, yet with that notwithstanding, we've also increasingly learned that, um, you know, a sizable proportion of health outcomes are really heavily driven by, you know, what we call in public health, the social determinants of health. Um, what, what do you think state and territorial public health departments can do to help influence the social determinants of health? I think social determinants of health are, are probably the, the, the thing that's most top of mind with all of our state public health leadership and local public health leaders too. I mean, you, you really can't work in public health for very long without realizing how much some of these underlying social determinants, things like poverty and housing and access to food and social support. I mean, that's, you know, those are the things that really ultimately determine health and good health. So everybody wants to work on those. It's, it can be very, very challenging to do that work though. And I, I speak here from behalf of our members, but also from personal experience. Uh, you know, it, it's one thing when you're talking about 
specific medical, you know, when you're a leader of a public health entity, you're speaking about particularly medical issues, you know, that's fine. When you start talking about behavioral or other risk factors, environmental risk factors for medical conditions, that's fine. When you start talking particularly to the public and to political leaders about social determinants, sometimes the response you get is, why, why are you bringing this up? That's not your area. You know, you're talking about the importance of housing. Housing is not the area that you oversee. And so it's a real challenge to, to, to understand how to really communicate that, that, that issue well with many of the people who make decisions around these things. The other thing that I think is really challenging is that, you know, there are really two different leadership styles or ways that public health leaders can um, influence things. And one is through direct influence. Uh, you know, obviously if we're running programs, we have specific influence on it. If we're trying to change a health related behavior, we have a lot of influence over that. Um, I'm sorry, we have a lot of authority over that. Uh, that that's the thing. In, in cases where we have authority, where it's pretty clear, you know, nobody is surprised when a public health official speaks up about mm -hmm. tobacco use and smoking. That's considered to be very much within our purview. I think the challenge is that with a lot of social determinants, we don't have direct authority, mm -hmm. but we do have influence. And I think, I think the thing that, that good public health leaders learn how to do is how to use that influence, how to use that influence with their peers who maybe do have the authority, how to use that influence with elected leaders who have a lot of authority, how to use that influence with the public. What, one of the, the areas that you pointed to earlier is the fact that you know we have we have this kind of federalized public health system. The states, as you're describing, kind of the leaders of you know states, addressing both directly and indirectly uh, uh, the different drivers of public health. When you when you view the system as as a system, right? You know, collectively with the federal players, state players, local players, private providers, and all of the other organizations and and sectors of society that play. Um, and you consider the, the the skills and capabilities of that entire enterprise. Uh, you know, what would you say that overall enterprise is is good at, and and where do we kind of fall short? I think that that the public health part of the enterprise, at least, is you know I, I think they're good at trying to base decisions on data, um, whether that's surveillance data and sort of understanding of health statistics and health trends, or whether it's also really trying to begin to understand where the best evidence is for interventions around those things that will work. Um, you know, the, the evidence-based intervention piece, I still think we can improve on, but, but I've seen a lot of progress in that over the course of my career. And then, you know, public health really is very surveillance and population-based data um, oriented. And I mean, that's, it's going to sound a little odd because I'm sure later in this, in this interview, I'm going to talk about the real challenges we have with some of our information systems and, you know, some of the um, inadequacies of some of the data systems we have. But ultimately, I mean, we, we do have a lot of existing systems that we've had in place for a long time, you know, um, you know very basic data like mortality data, and hospital discharge data, and infectious disease data. And, and we really, we do very well at using that data to determine where the problems are and what we need to do. We try to base our actions on a, a clear understanding of that. And I think that's where we 
provide the most added value to medical care systems. I mean, we understand population health. We center our work around population health. Whereas medical care systems, you know, they're much more engaged with individual health, which with individual health, which is appropriate. That's what one would hope they would focus on. But, you know, somebody needs to bring this broader uh, attention to the table of, you know, how do we improve the health of our communities overall? How do we really create environments and situations where, you know, the population health is, is really optimized? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, that that broad understanding of uh, population level health and uh, and uh, improvements and, and ways to, to um, capture information about and work to improve broad community health, I, I completely agree that that feels really central to, um, you know, what the public health enterprise uh, really adds uh, in value um, to society. Uh, yet, uh, you know, a lot has been written um, lately about the, the kinds of divisions in American society. Um, what do you think that the, the extended public health enterprise can do to help coalesce the country around a more shared appreciation for uh, and commitment to better public health outcomes? Getting, getting to that place is clearly the challenge, and we, we seem to be so divided right now. Um, I think that, you know, our earlier discussion about social determinants of health, I, I mean, I think the more that people can understand that it's really some of these underlying social and economic factors that play such a big role in how healthy people can be. And that, you know, if, if those factors are lined up poorly for you, then, then, you know, your opportunity to live a full and healthy life is extremely limited. And I think a lot of people don't, you know, there's so much of an emphasis on, you know, individual decision-making, but sometimes people forget about the context that those people, that people are having to make these decisions in. The other thing is the environment that we provide for people to be healthy in. I mean, the, easy, the more we can try to make it easy for people to make decisions that are healthy decisions, the more we can do that, the better. So, you know, if we want people to exercise regularly, make it easy to exercise, have resources in the community that allows them to do that. If you want them to eat well, uh, you know, make sure they have access to healthy food, no matter where they live in the community. Mm-hmm. And if we don't want them to smoke, make it difficult for them to smoke. I mean, that's <laughs> kind of a negative one, but that a lot of the really effective stuff has has uh, has focused on on those kinds of interventions as well. Mm-hmm. One one of the uh, obviously we're living in a quite a dynamic environment, and uh, I know that today. Uh, Dr. Plesha, you and Asto, you know, published uh, a letter kind of urging in some ways people to kind of take the temperature down around some public discussions around the environment we're currently in and to really try and and get everybody to kind of recommit and coalesce around kind of this kind of shared view of kind of what's what's good for the country. Um, Can you just say a couple words about kind of what led to that letter and, and how that kind of connects with kind of ASO's overall efforts to be an advocate? Yeah, well, I mean, that is our, our, our number one goal is to support our membership and our membership are, are having a difficult time right now. I mean, they, they are under a lot of pressure. Um, you know, they're, they're making decisions or recommending actions that are, 
are ultimately helpful for us to manage the pandemic, but that do cause other people to, uh, you know, suffer. I mean, when some of the things we've had to do around restricting certain businesses has been hard on, has been a hardship for the, for the um, economics of, of people and their livelihoods. Um, so that they're having a, a difficult time. And this is not unusual. I mean, any public health decisions often are somewhat controversial. Um, so, you know, it's not that our leadership aren't used to dealing with controversy and used to dealing with some criticism, some pushback on some of their recommendations or decisions. But what we're starting to see now is, is much more insidious than that. I mean, we've had, um, we've had people be threatened we've, and uh, been threatened you know, with, with their lives. We've had people have demonstrators turn up in the front yards and driveways of their homes. We've had public health officials be fired or forced to resign because of actions that they've taken. Um, and it's just been this very, you know, nasty and kind of negative response. I think really coming from a very, very small proportion of our population, but a proportion that's very vocal. And, you know, not only have we seen all these things and we've seen people lose their jobs, we've also seen an enormous number of people just starting to step down. The, the, the request is too great of them. And the, you know, the ability to sustain that kind of, it's, it's hard enough when you're really more or less working 24 seven and struggling to try to keep the community helpful, health, to keep a community healthy during a very difficult time. But, you know, when you're doing that, and on top of that, you're facing, you know, some really vitriolitic um, criticism and threats, uh, you know, that, that's asking a lot of anybody. And so the letter that we wrote was actually a letter to, to community and national leaders. And it was about leadership. And it was asking them as leaders to think about how hard it is when you find yourself in, you know, it's difficult to lead and particularly to lead during times of adversity. And what we decided our leaders need right now is the support of other leaders from other sectors. We need people to come out and say, some of this behavior is not acceptable. You know, showing up in somebody's front yard and making their, their family and children feel afraid is not acceptable and threatening people is not acceptable. And I think it's a, it's a social norm thing. I think it's sending a very clear message that, you know, dissent is fine, but that kind of dissent is not. And I think if we started to have some more consistent communication of that from other leaders who must, who must look at our leadership and, and think, you know, <laughs> that could be me in, 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 you know, in another type of setting. So that's what the, you know, the, the letter was a direct appeal for, for other people in leadership roles to step up and support their public health peers. Well, I think it's a it's a great way to exert and to exert leadership and, and support leaders that you represent. So I, obviously, I think we'd all stand behind that. Um, ASTO as an organization uh, it has some great resources for those of us who who've been endeavoring to learn more about the public health enterprise and. Uh, you all have compiled some very useful atlases of information in terms of what states organize their governance models for public health in different ways, you know, which are centralized and which are decentralized, et cetera. Um, can you speak a little bit from the point of view of a state public health leader, you know, when they're working in a centralized versus decentralized system and what the implications are for, for how they 
kind of exert leadership in the mission? Yeah, so when you work in a, we have centralized systems, we have decentralized systems, and we have kind of mixed systems where some of it's centralized, some of it's not. In those mixed systems, it's often the more rural communities that are under the state's purview, and then some of the more urban ones are not. If you're in a centralized system, that means basically the state public health entity, you know, really um, leads the entire system and the people who are out in local communities work for the state. So you obviously have a lot more um, ability to influence what goes on in those settings because those are your employees and those are people that you supervise and who, who report back to you. In a decentralized setting, it's completely the opposite. They are kind of autonomous. And so you have to lead in a different way. I mean, I, and I would say they're never completely autonomous. I mean, local communities depend on the state for a lot of things. And I don't mean depend in a negative way. I mean, you know, there are a lot of things that the state tries to do for local communities. Um, oftentimes when a, when a local community is facing some adverse situation or challenging situation, you know, they'll go to the state for the subject matter expertise Sometimes they'll go to the state for more resources and funding. So, you know, there's a good relationship in both systems. Um, you know, I have worked in North Carolina, which is a decentralized system. And so although I see the benefits of a centralized public health system where, you know, you can have much more of a uniform response. I've also worked in a decentralized system where I understand, you know, having it decentralized means that local communities can, you know, are much closer, uh, local communities and local leaders are much closer to what's going on in their community than somebody at the state level is. And, and they understand how to interface and they have the relationships with the healthcare sector and the faith community and the political, local political leaders. So, you know, they're, they're real, as much as it sometimes seems like the more centralized it could be, the better, there are probably pros and cons to each system. Um, and in some ways, maybe the mixed systems are or in some ways maybe the most effective because in those in rural areas where maybe they don't have as much resources having that relationship direct relationship to the state can bring a lot more um, opportunity and capacity whereas rural areas I mean, urban areas often have just a lot more resources and can fend for themselves and don't need as much support from the state when they can access economies of scale and scope that rural areas probably can't sure and then there are some cities that are bigger in population than states. So you have to keep that in mind too. So I mean, it is a kind of a complicated organization. The, the, that must then also play into the connection between the state public health organizations and kind of other state government functions. Yeah. How, how, do, those, how do those play out when, you know, you might have a, a decentralized or a hybrid system and you you have to work with you know a state housing department right that might be organized in a different way or uh you know other other state organizations that you know you need to to uh, kind of coalesce with and and kind of coordinate with yeah it depends you know it depends a little bit on the situation i mean some of the partners that we work closely with in public health you know a, a lot of that is most effective at the local level if you're working with the school system and you can deal directly at the local level with the superintendent of schools for that particular region or even some of the, the school principals you know you can have very direct action however if you're at the state level and you can deal with the education system at the state level at which it's organized you can look at far-reaching policies that affect everybody and you can work with your peers 
in these other agencies to affect those kinds of changes. It gets back a little bit to what I was talking about earlier about sort of the, the concept of leadership in public health. I mean, these are situations where state public health leaders are really leading through influence. I mean, they can't make <laughs> the school system, well, I mean, sometimes they can in, in rare circumstances, but for the most part, they can't make the school system or the housing system or commerce, they, they can't, or transportation, they can't make them do anything, but they, they do have relationships that are very important and they're peers and they often serve in a cabinet for uh, executive, you know, in a governor's cabinet together. And so, you know, they, sometimes they're most powerful in the areas they have influence over as opposed to the areas where they have direct authority. So if you turn your attention then from that kind of state and local interface and influence and you, you look instead, you know, towards Washington DC and towards, and in your case, I guess, towards Atlanta, uh, you know, your, the relationship within the federal government and federal institutions adds a layer of complexity onto this. Um, what, what do you think is, is an optimal or the optimal role for kind of federal institutions to play, given how much of that action is local? Uh, and, you know, when you think about kind of truly centralized functions like, uh, the strategic national stockpile and and, and you know, CDC's uh, research uh, and, and data management role. I mean, how do you think about the role of the federal government? Well, you know, I, I think one has to start by acknowledging that the Centers for Disease Control, which is really the agency, the federal agency that we work with most closely, is a little bit under siege right now. I mean, there's just, you know, things have not gone well with the pandemic. Some of it really is does go back to some errors they made. There's been a lot of strife within the federal government and much of that has affected the CDC. So, you know, things are, are different right now, but I would say, you know, for the most part, we don't, we've, we in state and local public health, I'll speak for state public health right now. We don't have, we really don't have any major issues with how we've interfaced with the CDC. I mean, there are periods where things can become a little contentious around various aspects. But, you know, for the most part, CDC provides technical assistance to states. They provide guidance. Um, they have excellent subject matter experts. I, I mean, you know, they, they have the kind of scientists where when you have a question about something maybe kind of unusual, you can find somebody at the Centers for Disease Control who's made that their professional interest. Um, and, you know, and they're, they're very thoughtful and they're very methodical in the guidance that they provide. So when, when you're given information or guidance or, or technical assistance, I think states tend to feel very confident in moving forward with whatever that guidance may be. Um, you know, I, I think that CDC is an also and it understands state public health systems and is an advocate for them and is an advocate for them in the remainder of the federal public health system. Now, the interaction between states, state public health agencies, and the rest of the government, you know, is not as well formed or strong. I mean, they have relationships with HRSA and to some extent with CMS and FDA. I mean, the, the, there's a wide range of things, but, but none of it is the kind of relationship with like the one that states have with CDC. And I think that's been, you know, that's been something we need to attend to in the future because what's happened is the federal government has, has needed to come into the pandemic response. They've, they've, there have been other agencies 
that are very capable and, and useful in dealing with some of the situations we faced. Um, but these are organizations that we don't know as well. And we don't have the same kinds of relationships and contacts. And, and I think that's, that's, that's led to some miscommunications and just lack of understanding about how each group works, which then leads to errors and, and frustrations. Mm -hmm. And as you think about, uh, you know, as you're saying, um, uh, how the different groups work, uh, thinking about the public health workforce uh, in particular, um, where would you say that it's it's currently sort of spread thin? You know, um, are there places where we particularly need to bolster staff? Um, and perhaps relatedly, um, what do you see in terms of a role for like an extended public health workforce um, through, for example, community health workers? Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I think that the public health enterprise is spread thin really across all aspects. Um, you know, it's just, you know, we, we haven't tended to put the emphasis on investing in public health systems and in public health capacity that we have in other sectors like, say, the, the medical sector. And so the result is, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know that I can point to one specific workforce area that's problematic. I think we have major inadequacies around um, our information technology systems, but that's technology, that's not people. Um, I think with people, it's, it's really an issue that um, we're spread thin everywhere. I mean, we're, we're, and we're concerned also on the other place that we're not spread thin yet, but we soon will be, is with some of our most experienced workers. I mean, many of them are reaching an age and a place in their career where they're going to start retiring. And there's a lot of concern about, you know, the, the leadership that will come in after them. And you know, I think there's some great and talented people out there and people who actually are trained and understand public health, but a lot of them have not chosen to pursue careers in governmental public health anymore. I mean, I think the, the group, the cohort that's retiring came into state and local public health, particularly state public health, at a time where you could really get a lot of stuff accomplished and, and have a lot of influence. And I think that that, you know, it's not, it's not like that anymore. It's, it's not as attractive for that reason. And so one of the challenges we have is there, there is, there are a lot of well-trained, you know, there's more schools of public health and public health mm -hmm. active programs than ever before, but we're not seeing those people come into mm. governmental public health. And, and that's a challenge we're really going to have to deal with. Now, the other thing that, that you alluded to, community health works, I mean, I think we, it's also, it's time to start thinking about, you know, what's the workforce we have now and what's the mm -hmm, workforce that mm -hmm. we need or that we need in the future. And, you know, th there's a lot of concern about um, nursing and, you know, there's been a nursing shortage across all sectors of public health medicine, you know, everywhere. That and and healthcare delivery as well. Yeah. Healthcare delivery, yeah, everywhere. But, you know, I mean, and, and I, nurses have been a huge component of the success we've had in public health. But, you know, going forward, I'm not sure that we need sort of the ground troop public health nursing workforce that we've had in the past. I think we need nurses to come in in more supervisory and leadership positions. And what we really need to start, and this is more in local public health than state, but what we really need more of in local public health is, mm -hmm. you know, what we refer to as lay workers or community health workers, you know, people who, don't necessarily have that medical or nursing or even public health background, but who are known in their community and are influenced in the community, mm. most importantly, who are trusted in their communities. Because so much of the work we do 
has to do with engaging people and gaining their trust. You know, if we want people to take the COVID vaccine, particularly if we want racial and ethnic minority communities to participate in the COVID vaccine, mm -hmm. we have got to win over their trust. And we're going to do that better with people who they identify with and who look like them and who they often even know than we are with, you know, sort of the more highly trained professionals that we, we put so much emphasis on. And it's not that there's not an important place for those high, kind of highly trained professionals, but it's time to start thinking a little bit differently. You know, we have an opportunity actually to diversify our workforce right now, and we need to take advantage of that. Would you, would you see, as, as far as that goes, would you see a role for a kind of a, unif a uniform kind of basic kind of training or certification program, or, or would you envision that to be like a very kind of localized and highly diverse uh, workforce that, you know, that might look very, very, very different in different places in the country? Well, I, you know, I would say both. I think that there are, there are programs to help train people for these kind of community health worker roles. Um, you know, a lot of them are very accessible through places like community colleges, so that, it, you know, building up some of the expertise and knowledge base that's useful is, is fairly accessible. I mean, that said, you don't, you know, you, you don't want to control it too much or institutionalize it too much. Otherwise, you know, you're on the risk that you're creating yet another healthcare employee who, who may not have that kind of trusted relationship, but somebody who's seen as a, as a little more of a community worker or a lay worker. Um, so, but, you know, I, I mean, I, I do think the people who work in public health do need to have some, some basic um, knowledge and expertise, but I think, you know, th there are a lot of people who we haven't looked to recruit in the past who could do, who could fulfill those kinds of roles and who could come at it with a very different kind of educational and training background. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, when you talk about uh, sort of being trusted in your communities, uh, it makes me think as well about um, how we're beginning to see a bit more involvement from an interest in um, engaging pharmacists, kind of local pharmacists. Um, what do you think about, about that developments and the role for pharmacists in public health? Pharmacists have begun to play a lot more role in various aspects of public health. And the place that we have been seeing it the most is um, around chronic disease control. I mean, because pharmacists, you know, particularly people who have medical risk factors for, for chronic diseases like high blood pressure or high cholesterol levels or even diabetes, I mean, they interact with their pharmacists a lot because they're going to get their medications filled. And sometimes the pharmacist has a little more time to really talk to them about some of the lifestyle changes and also just some of the, how do you take this medicine and how do you, how do you adhere to the medicine regimen you're on? And when do you know if something's wrong that you need to look into? And, you know, I, I, I'm a physician myself. I think physicians are very, very important in that communication chain as well. But, you know, pharmacists bring a different angle to it and have maybe a little bit more time to um, really help people with how they are personally going to manage the condition they have once they're back out in their communities. So we've started to really think about pharmacists as being helpful with chronic diseases. And then I think with COVID, we've begun to realize, you know, just how much access pharmacists have and, you know, how convenient they are to people in communities. And also they are, you know, often they work for big pharmacy chains that are able to 
you know, deal with some of the logistics of moving supplies around uh, very well. And so for things like vaccines, and particularly for the COVID vaccine, I mean, we may see that pharmacists and pharmacies play, you know, a, more, a bigger role in some of our attempts to get people vaccinated than we've seen in the past. And I, I think, you know, in the situation we're in, we really need to look for creative ways and, and other workforces that can help us get the job done because it's a big job to take on right now. And I don't think that state and local health departments can do what's ahead of us on their own. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I, I, you, you probably are seeing a bit of the test case for that right now. I think um, even the sort of local supermarket pharmacies, you know, are with the flu vaccine, just as an example, or, you know, kind of promoting come get your flu shot here, sort of, you could certainly envision a similar um, kind of thing uh, rolling out when a vaccine for COVID um, is available and needs, you know, needs broad distribution. It's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a balance. I know that sometimes the medical community becomes concerned about sort of scope of practice issues with pharmacists, and I, I think some of that is, um, is, is accurate. I think that we want to be careful that we, in the attempt to make things convenient for people, we don't, you know, end up undermining the importance of getting people into see a physician once in a while, because they can talk about, you know, they can deal with all kinds of things. And we also don't want to undermine mm-hmm. local public health departments. Who, you know, we don't necessarily want sort of a, an atmosphere of competition between local health departments and pharmacies. I, I think there's room for everybody. It's just a matter of thinking through, you know, who may be able to do what best and, um, who can be who can be most helpful, particularly in the situation that we're in. Right of course, now. the best provider is the one that you can actually get to. So, yes, <laughs> there's a lot. Of, their their breadth of of contact has a lot to recommend it. Yeah. Well, you know, um, you alluded to this a little earlier, but um, but we we would love to hear uh, your thoughts on uh, kind of uh, how. Uh, data systems, um, you know, are working uh, in, in your view, um, noting that the collection analysis and communication of public health data really are in many ways a critical driver of performance. Um, how would you characterize the current state of data systems that are used by the state public health organizations? And, and what would you say are kind of the top priorities for ASTO's membership when it comes to improving or modernizing public health data? Yeah, you know, I think that the public health data system is just not acceptable for the society that we live in. I mean, we hold so many other entities or aspects of our society, you know, at a place where it's just been so much more investment in this. And I mean, we, we have some, we have some local health departments that are still, uh, are still sharing data, you know, across different sites by faxing it, uh, you know, in this world that we live in, whatever is computerized. I mean, we still have people having to fax things back and forth to each other because their systems are just so antiquated. And, you know, it, and it's also, extremely disparate. I mean, affluent states that have significant revenues, you know, I think their public health departments have much stronger and better public health data systems than, you know, those states that are not as affluent. And we need to have a little bit more of a uniformity across all of that. It, it's a problem. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a problem for all states when you don't have the ability to communicate across states because people don't just stay within their state. They, they move around. They're very mobile 
Um, and, you know, I have to say as a physician, you know, I, I've seen how much has been invested really in the last decade or two in medical information technology, things like electronic medical records. I mean, you know, a lot of emphasis and a lot of attention has been put into really bringing that, those data systems into the current age. But unfortunately, we did not, we did not do the same thing with public health. And so these systems are, 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 you know, they're old, they're not very easy to use, they're not very easy to understand. It's, it, it's, it's very challenging when you go in front of, a, of an audience of policymakers and try to um, persuade them to take on an issue when the data you have about that issue is from last year. Um, and it's very mm -hmm. difficult to tell anybody whether we're making progress when you, when you don't get your data um, in real time. And we could do better than that in public health. And actually, I don't even think it would be that expensive of a problem to fix compared to some of the other things we need to fix. But the good thing is that I think that the COVID pandemic, <laughs> one of the few good things about it is that I think it has really pointed up how antiquated these systems are. And it's pointed up what the, not just the risk, but what the outcome and harm has been of not having paid attention to these deficits in the past. Mm -hmm. Who do you think the natural uh, advocate for like a, a, a real rethink of public health information systems? Is that going to have to come down from, from the feds given, you know, the, the huge benefit to having consistency across the country? I think the federal government can set some standards. I mean, you know, that's a little bit how they have brought up the information technology system in medical care practices. I mean, they didn't come in and take over. They, yeah, it was a high tech act. They, it was they a high tech act. Yeah, they, they just incentivized said, yeah. it. You know, it was in it was in everybody's interest to get on board with these new technologies, and there were there were financial benefits to doing that. And there were disincentives too. There were financial disincentives if you didn't. So I think, you know, it's really, it's the same recipe that we used in the medical care setting, just applying it to the public health setting. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I know from the, the discussions we've had with providers, uh, they, they would very much support kind of taking good advantage of all the investment they've made in electronic health record systems, right? And being able to kind of support a, a more robust uh, approach to public health data. So I think you'd probably have a lot of allies there. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is also going to take some push from the top. And, you know, one of the challenges with medical care systems is they often see the data that they have as proprietary and they're very competitive with each other. And so, you know, sometimes the challenges we have is we can't get access to data because, you know, the health systems are, you know, concerned about sharing it and concerned about it getting into the wrong hands or concerned about it somehow putting them at a competitive disadvantage. So somebody's going to have to make that okay for them. Um, and I think that is going to require, you know, federal action or in some state, in some situations, states may be able to sort of provide, provide the regulatory or, or whatever other structure it's going to take to allow some of that data that's, that's out there and available and just hasn't been um, really shared widely. Well, you know, one of the advantages, of course, is, is the states are, the, for the most part, to my understanding, are the, the keepers of uh, regulation when it concerns medical licensing, et cetera. So they do have a little bit of influence with provider organizations. Mm -hmm. 
Um, one of the one of the topics we've we've touched on, kind of in various points in this conversation, Dr. Plesha, is is you know what's happened during the pandemic and the polarization that we've seen. Um, at, at the end of the day, how do how do state public health leaders and and by extension the, the local folks that they work with right all up and down get messages to and and accept and, and get those messages accepted by you know all members of the public um you know it's, we're, we're we're learning as if we needed to have learned it again uh just how much you know none of us are healthy unless all of us are healthy and uh how how do public health leaders get that message across to folks in a way that they can take it on board? Well, you know, some of this is about public health. Some of this is about our society. Uh, you know, I think that we, we've arrived at a place where we need more of a societal commitment to the common good. Uh, I mean, some of the things that we're asking people to do, I mean, there's a benefit to them, but, you know, it really also has to be about looking out for each other. Uh, I mean, you know, something as simple as wearing a mask. I mean, I think you get some protection yourself if you're wearing a mask, it protects you. But what's much more important is if you happen to be sick and you don't know it, it keeps you from giving that to somebody else. And, you know, I think somehow that's not come through strongly enough in this pandemic and, and we need to return to that. And I don't know that, you know, it, public health on its own can't bring about that kind of change of societal norms. We, we have to, we have to, and I think we will after we witness and experience what we've been through. I, I think we will come to that. Um, but, you know, that's, that's going to be very, very important for our society going forward. And, you know, we, we like to say that um, states are, are the laboratories of democracy. And I would say that if states and particularly state public health departments are struggling, then I worry that democracy is, is struggling. So we, we really have to kind of deal with that issue. And, you know, sometimes it just has to get bad enough that it gets people's attention. And it's certainly gotten bad with this pandemic. And, you know, sadly, I think it's like those of us who work in public health think it's likely to get worse as we move into the winter months. Um, and, you know, as we wait for some of the, some of the things that may help us like the vaccine but you know we really have to get to a place where we're willing to you know we have this strong sense of independence in this country and you know that's part of what makes us unique but we also you know we we have to think about sometimes when we have to sacrifice some of our independence um, and some of our freedoms just for the for the good of us all and you know i, I don't know that I have the answer of, of how to get there. I hope that people seeing, you know, some of, some of what's happened over the last six months um, is going to create that environment. Um, and then once we have that environment, I think then it's a lot easier. And we're not going to have that perfect environment. I mean, that's not who we are. But if, people, if we can get a little more acceptance of that from people, then it's a lot easier for public health to convey its message. I mean, you know, our public health leaders who are getting attacked and having these sort of threats and things against them, you know, the, the only thing that they are doing is trying to keep people safe. And there, there's not really any particular benefit in that for them. So, you know, they really are trying to act in the best interest of the public. And that's why I think we have been so disturbed by 
some of the sort of really negative and, and nasty and threatening um, acts that we've seen. But ultimately, you know, if we get to, a, you know, we need to get to a place, like I had said a little bit earlier with leadership, where that's not, you know, that's not acceptable anymore. That, you know, we, we strive for a certain common good and we look out for each other and we listen to people when they're, when they're making recommendations, which are really about trying to get through a difficult situation together with the least number of people suffering the least amount. Um, and that's a social norm issue. And I mean, we, we, we spend a lot of time working on changing social norms in public health and trying to influence social norms. And, you know, that, that is ultimately going to be the thing that will, will help us get through the rest of the pandemic and then would also prepare us for pandemics that we might have in the future and many other public health issues that we face. Well, hopefully the, the letter that went out today can be circulated far and wide uh, and we can get all sectors of society on board with, you know, holding holding ourselves to that standard of civilized behavior that we need to have, right, in order to, to maintain an advanced society. Yeah. Well, great. I, I appreciate that. And uh, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I always learn a lot from these conversations, and, and uh, today is certainly no exception. Um, Dr. Plesha, any, any last words you'd want people to take away before we say goodbye? No, I really think we've kind of hit on everything I hope to talk about. So uh, looking over my notes and there's really not anything that's jumping out at me. Um, actually, I, you know, I will speak to one thing that I had made some notes on is, you know, what, what do we, what are the important qualifications for a public health leader? And, you know, that, that is something we're very interested in, you know, and that is something that is going to be important for the future. Um, and you know we, we we need to make sure we can continue to attract public health leaders who are who are well versed in science, uh, you know, because we need to base public public health on science, and then who have political influence, and you know, those are things that you know is really a very refined and much sought after leadership skills, and we need to make sure we're creating professional paths that bring those kind of people into public health. I think we have done that really, really well up until now. We have, you know, I am very, very impressed with the public health leaders who run our state public health, state and territorial public health departments right now. But I'm also worried that, you know, some of them are getting tired and some of those, and some people are probably looking at the way they're being treated and thinking, but I really want to do that. So, um, you know, we, we need to pay attention to that because that leadership is, is probably the most important thing about the future of the public health system. Well, well said, and I, I, I share the, the concern about the future and you know, how we're treating people and the messages that sends. Um, with that, I think it's a good time to wrap it up. Uh, Dr. Plesha, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, Nicola and I will look forward to our next uh, episode of this conversation. And with that, thanks very much, everybody, and stay safe and mask up and be healthy. Take care.